0: Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad
1: and Daughter Do
0: Death. Hi, Phoebe.
1: Hi, Dad. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Yeah, I'm good. Have you had a good week? Um, Yes, it's been fine. Just a pretty normal week of work. Last week turned into a bit of an adventure that we weren't expecting, I don't think. No, um, yeah. We normal... came on a
1: spontaneous trip
0: yeah, to visit. Yeah, which blew a hole in our normal recording schedule, really, didn't it? So yes, it did, yeah. That's why we're a bit late with this one. But we had a great night out, and it was we lovely did. to see you and all the boys.
1: It was lovely. It was nice to... uh have a trip away, change of scenery for us, which Mid-week is break. And obviously, I'll we'll be able to see
0: you face to face, not great. just
1: uh, via On the Zoom. Screen.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes.
1: I'm just blown away by how quickly time's going. Like, it's I
0: July June. tomorrow. <laughs> by the time this goes
1: out, it'll be July. Like, what?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I know.
1: But that means we're hurtling towards October.
0: Your favorite month.
1: My favorite month. We'll be there soon.
0: <laughs> yes. And hopefully, your pumpkins will have grown by then.
1: Oh, no, the pumpkins aren't going to have grown by then.
0: Oh, really? Because something's eaten them. Oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we've talked about this, but um, we've acquired an allotment. And yeah, a lot of the things that we keep planting keep getting
0: eaten by some Oh, really? Quite a lot. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, the courgettes, gone. Oh, decimated. Really? Yeah, pumpkins, decimated. All oh. of them. Because we thought it was slugs to start with. And i have seen this hack about putting scourers around the bottom of them because yeah. I don't like the feeling of it. And Rich put the scourers down and then he went back a couple of days later and the scourers were there, but none of the plants were there. So we think it must be like rabbits or deer or something like that. That's like Because there's nothing there. They just completely disappeared. It's not like there's a few holes in them. They've just gone. Oh, wow. Gone. Um, Ooh. But he's yeah. got like, I think broccoli and like um, some Brussels sprouts and some carrots and stuff like that. And that's all under a net and that's all, all right but Just yeah. we've got like loads of strawberries <laughs> well that's good he works it out a ki- according to the tesco website a kilo of strawberries from there is like is eight pound 32 or something like that if you buy a kilo of strawberries so he's like we've got four kilos worth which is like
0: 37 pounds
1: oh yeah exactly so he's already made his money back on it <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> if nothing else and those are
0: the plants he inherited with the plot were yeah
1: they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm you devastated produce. about the pumpkins i'm not gonna lie
0: yeah so apart from uh, animals stealing your produce, uh, is there any other true crime news?
1: Yeah, well, if that wasn't a crime enough, the the big news that has been out this week, I guess, is that the laundry family, so Brian Laundry's parents from the Gabby Petito case which we have talked about in some depth in the past, they released the a photograph of the pages of his notebook that he left his suicide note in, oh. explaining why he decided to kill Gabby and to confirm that he did kill Gabby. I thought it was it was an interesting read. We can probably share it on our social media pages. It's quite hard to read because it's literally like a handwritten. Oh, okay. In a notebook note. A, but no.
0: a little ring. Yeah, down. and look, you can see look, like where all the fine,
1: water's like been in it and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so this honestly, was in his that bat backpack that, that they found in the swamp. The, being, ooh, right? So basically he says in it, I won't read the whole thing, but he says that they were rushing back to their car, trying to cross the streams of Spread Creek before it got too dark to see and too cold. And then he says, I hear a splash and a scream I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment. I shouted her name. I found her breathing heavily, gasping my name. She was freezing cold. We'd just come from the blazing hot national parks in Utah. The temperature had dropped to freezing and she was soaking wet. I carried her as far as I could down the stream towards the car, stumbling exhausted in shock when my knees buckled and I knew I couldn't safely carry her. I started a fire and spooned her as close to the heat. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long. I couldn't at the time realise that I should have started a fire first, but I wanted her out of the cold back to the car. From where I started the fire, I had no idea how far the car might be. I only knew it was across the creek. When I pulled Gabby out of the water, she couldn't tell me what hurt. She had a small bump on her forehead, and eventually, which eventually got larger. Her feet hurt, her wrist hurt, but she was freezing, shaking violently. While carrying her, she continually made sounds of pain. Laying next to her, she said little lapsing between violent shakes, gasping in pain, begging for an end to her pain. She would fall asleep and I would shake her awake, fearing she shouldn't close her eyes if she had a concussion she would wake in pain start the whole painful cycle again while furious that I was the one waking her she wouldn't let me try to cross the creek thought like me that this fire would go out in her sleep and she'd freeze I don't know the extent of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful that it is what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked, I was in shock, but from the moment I decided to took away her pain, I knew I couldn't go on without her. So there's a bit more kind of on side of that, but he's basically insinuating that she got hurt so badly that he decided he had to kill her.
0: Hmm.
1: Which I don't think I believe.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, so... Uh interesting and then he said basically that he went home and he decided that he was going to, to kill himself went home basically said goodbye to his family and then took himself off and killed himself yeah. um which is interesting because the petito family are suing his family at the moment for basically that they knew what was going on and they didn't share it it's a civil case but the judges said yeah there's enough evidence to prove that they probably did know what was going on so um, they've confirmed today that it is going to go to trial. Um, so that'll be interesting to kind of follow to say that the laundry family knew more than they were kind of letting on. And then when when their attorney was saying, you know, oh well, they have no idea where Gabby is, and you know they they think that she'll be found alive, that they were kind of willingly misleading the family.
0: And and just remind me, she was found. In Utah? Yes. In amongst wherever it was they'd been hiking and yeah. stuff. And he drove all the way back to Florida? Florida, yeah. Without a,
1: Yeah. Wow. And then he was at home for a couple of days, I think they worked out in the timeline, and then he took himself mm. off. And then obviously they found his skeletal remains some time later. Yeah,
0: in a swamp.
1: Along with the backpack with this notebook.
0: Yeah. I don't think we can really judge, can we? (laughs) Especially if it's a still in effect to life case, because he was never found guilty. No, of it.
1: But anyway, that is the kind of
0: that's the latest.
1: latest... So tonight, I am going to tell you another relatively local, very local case. Oh yeah, me based in Hull. On the 4th of December, 1979, a fire broke out at the front of a house on Selby Street in Hull. And inside the house were Edith, Hasty and her sons, Thomas and Charles, who were both 15, Paul, who was 12, and Peter, who was 8. And the family were all asleep at the time. Now, Charles was able to rescue his mother by pushing her out of an upstairs window. Oh my goodness. He couldn't help his brothers, Paul and Peter, who were in the same bedroom as he was, because by opening the bedroom window, it had caused a draft, which had fed the fire. All three were trapped and were burned severely, and they were taken to the specialist burns unit at Pinderfield Hospital in Wakefield. Charles died overnight. Peter died two days later, and Paul survived for 12 days before he also died. Thomas, who was the other 15-year-old, he had muscular dystrophy, but he was able to escape through a window in the back bedroom and he survived as the the flames were much less severe on that side. Edith Hasty also had three daughters who were staying with relatives elsewhere in the area and her husband, Tommy Hasty was actually in prison. So quite a big family, but three of them died in this awful fire. So the police set up a makeshift incident room in a former police station and they began talking to local people about the fire and the family to try and figure out what had happened. Was it arson? Was it an accident? Was it an electrical fire? And they were surprised and quite shocked by the rather casual response from the neighbourhood. You know, this awful fire that had caused these brothers to die, they were kind of like, nah, they were quite indifferent at the fact that these three boys had been killed. The indifference of the neighbourhood really came to a climax at the funeral for the boys. They had a big joint funeral in January 1980, where their mother, Edith, issued an outburst to the gathering crowd over their lack of sympathy for the loss of her sons. And I think, you know, they were kind of known in the area for being a bit of a difficult family, potentially. Okay. Um, though, you know, They were kind of getting into trouble. But still, you know, she'd lost three of her children. Yeah. It was awful fire then the police were were quite surprised as to why people weren't that interested. All three of the boys were buried together in one grave at the Northern Cemetery in Hull. Okay. And once the police had established that the Hasties were known as a kind of problem family responsible for petty crime and vendettas, they started to look for an arsonist who might've been seeking some sort of revenge because... They thought this probably wasn't an accident, seen as how mm-hmm. disliked they were by their community. Several teenagers volunteered to be questioned routinely about the fire, but the police were no closer to finding a suspect. That was until about six months later when a young man called Peter Dinsdale confessed to the crime.
0: Oh.
1: So Peter George Dinsdale was born on the 31st of July, 1960 in Manchester. His mother was a prostitute and he didn't know his father. Peter was brought up between children's homes and his grandparents. And some reports suggest that he burnt down a shopping centre when he was nine, oh, um, shopping which actually killed a six-year-old boy. They think that you know this was something that he had done in his past. He was a bit of a pyromaniac. He suffered from epilepsy which his mother couldn't cope with, which caused him to be kind of sent to these children's homes and to live with his grandparents. Yeah. And he also had congenital spastic hemiplegia in his right limbs, which left him with a limp in his right leg and this compulsion to kind of hold his right arm across his chest. As an adult, he worked as a labourer, which is what brought him to Hull, and he was known locally as Daft Peter.
0: Oh, okay. Earlier
1: in 1979, Peter actually changed his name to Bruce George Peter Lee in homage to the martial arts star. In June 1980, so six months after the fire, the, the fire yeah. Peter confessed in great detail to pouring paraffin through the letterbox of the house on Selby Street and setting it alight in revenge against Charles Hasty, with whom he'd had a bit of a relationship with. And Peter said that the 15-year-old boy had threatened to go to the police as he was a minor at the time, unless Peter gave him some money. Peter had also become infatuated with Charles's sister, Angelina, but she'd rejected his repeated advances. So he decided to set fire to the house, which had caused the death of the three brothers, destroying that family. Yeah. Which is sad. But during further questioning, Peter unexpectedly confessed to starting nine more fatal fires in Hull over the previous seven years. But none of the fires at the time were treated with suspicion. Inquest recorded misadventures, verdicts, and arson was never considered. But a total of 26 people had died in these fires. What? Um, To in
0: nine fires?
1: 26 people in nine fires over the previous seven years in Hull. And that ranged from a six month old baby, a young mother and her three small sons, to 11 elderly gentlemen in the residential home, Wensley Lodge. Dozens more were burned or suffered from smoke inhalation and received injuries while escaping.
0: They tended to be houses then. It sounds like there was a a home. Yeah, houses and
1: yeah, mostly just kind of houses. He claimed that most of the fires were just started at random because he just loved fire and he rarely considered whether he was endangering life when he started them. So he would just kind of wander along, decide to set a fire to a house and crack on with his day. It was only the hasty fire and two others in houses which were owned by people he knew and with who he had kind of grudges against. So it was only kind of three of the 10 fires that he started that were kind of for a personal reason. I think he kind of did it more to kind of inconvenience them rather than to kill them. (laughs) It it seemed like his motive was just more kind of, yeah, he just decided to set fire to something or something to do rather than to kill people.
0: And kind of for the fun of the fire.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: A bit like with Peter Moore in our last episode who... Yeah. You just liked stabbing People. Yeah,
1: exactly. And he just liked setting fire to things. So I wouldn't say the police had kind of had this confession from him. They weren't entirely sure whether he was being truthful or whether he was just kind of making this up. So yeah. they drove him around Hull to the different locations he told them he'd started fires, and then he kind of pointed out the buildings that he'd set a fire to in those areas. And although he couldn't say. Dates or kind of put them in any sort of really order that he'd kind of done it in. He said like, oh yeah, I started a fire at that house. I started a fire at that house. Started a fire at that house, and it was all kind of in the years previous to this, so they'd been kind of fixed and put back together. But when they kind of went back, they were like, yeah, actually, everywhere that he'd said there had been fires in those places and these tragedies had occurred. And he said that when he'd heard of the of many of the deaths he'd caused. He'd sought solace in the Bible, but he wasn't persuaded to stop or confess. And the police still weren't entirely sure whether he was kind of telling the truth or whether he was just a well-informed fantasist. So they deliberately took him to a house where a really high-profile fire had happened, but a criminal conviction had already been secured. Right, And he said, no, nope, I didn't have anything to do with this. Never been anywhere near this house, not been in this area, nothing to do with me. Which made them believe that he was being truthful actually mm-hmm. about the fires that he'd started because it would have been really easy for him to say, Oh yeah, yeah, that was one of mine. But he was like, No, no, I didn't have anything to do with this one. But the other ones, they were mine.
0: Okay. Did I know so this is through the seventies basically then that these yeah. fires were taking place? I don't know what fire forensics was like.
1: Yeah. I 50 have a no
0: idea. <laughs> Whether or not, because these days they know, don't they, if the accelerant's mm-hmm. been used, they can see where the accelerant was actually yeah placed where it started where um I'm just thinking of that other case in Derby. The filter pot. Yeah. And they they knew immediately that an accelerant had been put through the letterbox and, and yeah. it had gone all over the hall floor and then but then like you say with the other one, it was the draft I think that took the flames up yeah. the stairs. And that's why it went out of, out of control. So. I
1: would assume that in the 70s they didn't really have a very good idea about the forensics of accelerant and stuff like that. Because okay. if they did they surely they would have said that those earlier fires yeah, were, were arson rather were arson, were arson not just misadventure or
0: accidents yeah. Yeah. I mean I know in that field pot thing weren't they able to even tell the the manufacturer of the petrol yeah, from I think the so chemical so that there was enough evidence left even after the fire for the components of the petrol to be identified that's insane so isn't that it? they knew you know whether it was so or bp or whatever Crazy. Uh, because of the uh, yeah um, well okay if, it, if things have moved on a lot then in the in, well, so. it is 50 years ago isn't it the 70s
1: forensics has definitely moved on since then i mean in the 70s they couldn't they weren't using dna were they for nope. for things so nope. you know things have really have moved on a lot since then So despite initially saying that he wasn't sorry for the deaths he caused, as killing wasn't on his mind when he began the majority of the fires, he later offered apologies for his actions whilst he was awaiting trial. And I think that, you know, because he was kind of like, well, I didn't plan to kill them, that just happened, I just wanted to set some fire. So he's almost like didn't feel guilty for it, because it's not what he intended to do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. On the 20th of January 1981, um, Peter pleaded not guilty, at Leeds Crown Court to 26 counts of murder but he pled guilty to 26 counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and to 11 counts of arson he'd also confessed to an additional 10 non-fatal fires in locations like shops and warehouses but he wasn't charged with those he was initially taken to Park Lane Special Hospital in Liverpool and was later transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital and and the really interesting thing is He was the most prolific killer in the UK at the time. So the time that he was kind of operating in the late 70s, he'd killed the most people. However, he got pretty much no national publicity because it kind of came as manslaughter rather than murder. But Mm -hmm. also because it was at the time when Peter Sutcliffe was on trial. So the Yorkshire uh, okay. River, it was, it was all happening at the same time, and his kind of—he only killed half the people, literally exactly half the people that yeah, Bruce the Bruce Lee <laughs> killed. But yeah, because that was there was all that kind of yeah. drama around it, and it was a kind of better story essentially, and it was much more personal. There was like, a yeah. kind of women getting picked off the street. It was much more high profile than than he was getting all of the attention, which left kind of. Bruce, Peter, just getting very little attention for what he'd done.
0: Yeah, the most prolific uh, killer of the time. Yeah. Then in
1: 1983, a public inquiry concluded that the fire at the Wednesday Lodge was accidental and that he wasn't responsible for it or the deaths of the 11 residents, which is interesting. Ah, okay. Um, and senior fire investigation officers supported these conclusions. Those kind of 11 manslaughter convictions were quashed. And he's actually recanted his confessions and consistently claiming his innocence since the late 1980s. For all of them. For all of them.
0: Including the three.
1: So he actually launched um, a new appeal last year in
0: 2021.
1: Okay. um, Following a referral from the Criminal Cases Review Commission, arguing that due to his physical disabilities, he could not have committed the crimes and had falsely confessed due to the state of his mental health which again is another really interesting thing and something that I think you think, well, pe- why would you confess to con- killing people if you mm-hmm. hadn't killed them? But um, I don't know if it's such a phenomenon here, but it seems to be a real thing in America. David Rudolph wrote a book all about basically kind of people who confess, and he's got a podcast as well, people who kind of get okay. charged for crimes that they didn't do. And the way that people are kind of led into almost giving false confessions in the way that the police kind of like lead people into giving false confessions like round the whole like west memphis three that's a really um, high profile case where they were kind of led into a false confession when there was literally zero evidence there's the innocence project which tries to kind of get people out of prison who have kind of been led into false confessions essentially and yeah i mean the west memphis three is a really famous one
0: Oh
1: yeah, um, around how they just decided that they were going to, because they listened to you 2 and they wore black coats and they had long black hair, they must be satanic worshippers who murdered the little boys in the river with literally no evidence against them. <laughs> I downloaded the audible version of David Rudolph's book which is called American Injustice. There's some really interesting cases on there about you know, the the way that the legal system lets people down, you know, a system that's kind of set up to support people and how it kind of lets people down. Because I think that's part of his argument with the Michael Peterson case, is that the police had decided that he was guilty.
0: Yeah. And... They just want the uh, the case closed, that's it.
1: So this new appeal was launched last year, um, where he said that, you know, because of his, his physical disabilities, he couldn't have done it. And the Court of Appeal ruled this year... That actually, he couldn't have been responsible for two of the fires, um, okay. and they acquitted him of two counts of arson and three of manslaughter. However, the remaining convictions were upheld. He's still at the Rampton Secure Hospital, I believe, rather than right. actually kind of being in prison, um, where he has has still been found guilty of eleven counts of manslaughter.
0: And that was forty years ago when he was nineteen eighty one, was it? When the trial. Yeah. Okay, fair enough, but uh, it's still it's still an active case by the sounds. Yeah. Of means. Well, is, yeah?
1: An interesting idea of was he a murderer? Was he just a manslaughterer? Because he still caused the death of these people, and in some of the cases, like with the brothers, yeah, he obviously wanted to cause some sort of upset. So, is that murder? Because there's premeditation there for me. Mm. If <laughs> um, if, he, if
0: he deliberately killed those three for revenge or wanted to kill someone in that house for revenge yeah. that is murder.
1: That's murder isn't it not manslaughter. Book,
0: yeah. yeah but if the others were just sort of like collateral damage in his yeah.
1: Need pyromania
0: yeah then maybe they would be manslaughter.
1: There's definitely an argument here I think for his kind of mental state and you know where where his his head was at for this time because it's not normal to go around setting fire to things for fun, is it? That's not a, no. something that a kind of well human being would do. There's obviously, you know, and the fact that he's in a secure unit rather than a prison, there's obviously some kind of questions around his, his mental health, but it still, to me, sounds like murder, <laughs> with the, especially with yeah. the kind of the brothers. But yeah, yeah, I have no idea kind of if he's got any, if there are any plans for him to be released or... Um whether he'll just be there for rest of his life. <laughs> his life. Yeah. So there you go.
0: Interesting. That is the B-
1: story of Bruce George Peter Lee or Peter Dinsdale, or how he, he's actually known now is Peter Tredget.
0: Oh, okay. That is the story of him. Well, thank you very much. Interesting story, and uh, mm. particularly with the local connections that yes. you, you have.
1: I think it's really interesting that like you just don't really hear about him because the Yorkshire Ripper got yeah. all the attention, basically.
0: Both Yorkshire cases.
1: Yep. <laughs> Good old Yorkshire.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Phoebe. Do you have any uh, yeah. any sort of pictures that? Yep. Can be I, shared.
1: Yes, I will share some pictures. I will put them on our Instagram
0: at Dad and Daughter Do Death.
1: I will also share them to our Facebook page.
0: Dad and Daughter Do Death.
1: And please do get in touch with us. It's been lovely hearing from a few of you this week or over yeah, the last few weeks. So, yeah, please do carry on getting in touch with us. We love hearing from you. You can email us at
0: Dad and all to do death at gmail.com.
1: Or you can just send us a message or a comment on any of our social media pages.
0: Yeah, like a few of you have recently, as Phoebe just said. So thank you very much for that. It's really good to hear from you. So, Phoebe, I had this idea that... Um, as we go in, into July and August, it marks the uh, Commonwealth Games that are taking mm-hmm. place in the UK. Indeed, they're taking place in Birmingham.
1: Pretty much in your back Literally <laughs> two miles
0: down the road. Yeah, here. And in fact, I will be forming part of the Games by way of being a volunteer. A volunteer Exciting. Games Ambassador. My uniform has arrived this week and Woo-hoo. very smart, if perhaps a little baggy. So for the next two or three cases that we'll do, Mm -hmm. we'll be looking at true crime that has happened in some of our Commonwealth countries around the world, spreading our net a little further.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to uh, step out of Europe for a few weeks.
0: So let's see where our adventures take us over the next two or three episodes.
1: Yeah, I'm excited.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed for that amazing story. You're welcome. And we hope you found it interesting too. Please join us next time when once again, Dad... And daughter,
1: do death.